Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair with the second programme in our five-part repeat series about Ivan Illich. I feel embarrassed and fascinated when I look at an old book. Yeah, with a very pointed pencil, I succeeded to say many things quite well. But the context, the way of saying it, isn't what I would do today. So I close the book and put it away. I wrote these books as pamphlets for the moment. Mm -hmm. It's amazing, in a certain way, that they should still be around. And when I now think about tools for conviviality, in the middle of a political struggle in South America, being actually shot at and beaten up with chains because I ridiculed the Peace Corps, I was in a different situation. In the early 1970s, Ivan Illich poured out a flood of books and articles calling for a cultural and institutional revolution. He claimed that contemporary institutions and their professional promoters were creating a dazed and disabled population, cut off from nourishing contact with nature and other persons by dependence on packaged goods and services. And he proposed that society adopt a constitution of limits, restricting technology to a natural scale, recapturing culture from economy, and replacing unlimited consumption with a more modest and austere way of life, centered on society and celebration. Tonight we'll explore these proposals in part two of Part Moon, Part Travelling Salesman, Conversations with Ivan Illich. And we'll hear how Illich views these earlier writings today. The series is written and presented by David Cayley and based on conversations recorded last fall at Illich's house in State College, Pennsylvania, where he teaches for part of the year at Penn State University. Tonight's program begins in the 60s, when Illich directed the Center for Intercultural Documentation, or CDOC, in Cuernavaca, Mexico. Remember atmosphere that was in mm -hmm. the 60s. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to make people today believe that this was uh, not sentimentalism or not mere fantasy and not mere escapism and not mere anger and hatred. There was a real sense of renewal there and it was not romantic trying to go back to paradise. It was for many of the best not apocalyptic. Of course there were the Stalinists around. <laughs> and it was not simply Reich's greening of America or SLN. There were people who were searching for renewal, but they sought this renewal through giving themselves totally to make a new society right now. Between 1962 and 1975, Ivan Illich's center in Cuernavaca, Mexico, was an expression of this hope for renewal. Housed in a great white house on a hillside overlooking the city, CEDOC became a gathering place for those interested in new directions for a society seemingly bent on self-destruction. It was originally established as a training center for American priests and religious and as a forum for dialogue between the United States and Latin America. By the mid-60s, Illich was also hosting research seminars 
which attracted friends and collaborators from all over the world. Lee Swenson is an old friend of Illich's who remembers CDOC during those years. CDOC was a, a lovely uh, haven for a bunch of friends to come to. And then when you go back and look, I find books all the time. When you look at Lewis Hyde's wonderful little book called uh, The Gift, mm -hmm. well, in the back you see the first dedication or the first homage is of Lewis's is, you know, CDOC. And I, I have a bunch of books at home. I'd have to think about what they are. But you go back and there was a real rich dialogue that catalyzed seeds that were spread and, and things that came out years later from that kind of thing. So that place was a wonderful island oasis, you know, that one could swim to or, you know, whatever, to go to, to be in for that kind of rich, intensive dialogue. And the structure of CDOC itself was anybody could take or teach a class and then if people came to your first seminar, you know, if somebody was invited to do it, so then you could, they would come and if they wanted to stay on, then there was a small cash fee that was charged. So it was a kind of free university. Yeah, the problem is that then it got confused with the idea that it was free, which people began to think at that time meant no structure, no, yeah. no uh, caring about the, in, you know, the, the, the little world you were in there. It got abused by the North American invasion and kids coming to look for Don Juan, you know, and wanting to be warriors of the spirit and all these gooey things that made it, you know, that made it painful to be there in certain ways. But then always there was this other fresh breath of air that was very strong, you know, blowing through the halls of the place in a way. CDOC could not always defend itself from the callow revolutionary fantasies, which were the shadow side of the 60s, but it still remained a free center of committed and disciplined intellectual inquiry. Both sides of CDOC are illustrated in a story Illich likes to tell about what happened to his good friend, the American writer Paul Goodman, on a visit to CDOC. Valentina Bormans, who directed CDOC, had always closed down all other activities, language, teaching, and uh, seminar activities, given a free hour even to the employees, and under a big tree on benches which accommodated up to three, four hundred people if they wanted it, there was what we called the, the daily circus. <laughs> and Goodman had accepted to give four lectures, and he had chosen as his theme the law. And on that day, he spoke about the majesty of the law. And there was a little red-haired, woolly-headed kid who felt that anarchistic testimony was very important. I had caught him stuffing forks into the toilet. This was anarchistic testimony? Yeah. I just looked at him and told him, come, let's take them out together. And didn't tell anybody anything, but I knew the guy. And this guy gets up and says to Goodman, we had expected something else from a man like you, coming along here and talking about the law at a moment like this. He said much nastier things, which I can't remember and won't repeat. Goodman began to cry. And when had finally his tears had stopped, he looked at him and said, I guess... We have come to a point where you have to be an anarchist to understand the dignity of the law. Anarchism, to Paul Goodman, meant not the refusal of law, 
but the refusal of power. Anarchists have a unique appreciation for the dignity of law because it is only they who believe that law is a natural part of human societies and therefore need not rest on coercion. Goodman was often at CDOC in the last years of his life, participating in the seminars on alternatives in education, which also involved Paulo Freire, John Holt, and many others. In these seminars, Illich shaped and refined the analysis which he would eventually publish as de-schooling society, the first of his great institutional critiques. You can design a school to teach reading and writing at any chosen cost. You have to choose the cost, and then you can construct a school which makes the teaching of reading and writing that expensive. The cost of education rises with the money available for education. And learning difficulties rise with the, with the amount of money per capita available for education. I made this statement in France uh, in May in a group of, among a group of intellectuals, and I heard only, mais non, monsieur, vous êtes fou. I said, gentlemen, careful, you are very close to the critical point of $350 per capita in elementary schooling where reading difficulties begin to develop. <laughs> they told me, no, monsieur, I happened to be with the same group um, three weeks ago. And suddenly one gentleman who is a high-level employee of the Ministère de l'Éducation Nationale took out a report. You know, it is not for publication, but here we have in these schools which we surveyed, high schools, 23% people with reading difficulties. They had reached the critical amount of investment into education. No wonder. One likes to write education as E equals S schooling elevated to a number of Y's, years. Through this particular uh, ritual, society is provided with a, quite a few services. For instance, babysitting, custodial care. Second, people are graded and shaded. As soon as you talk to somebody, you ask him, what school did you attend, quality, and for how many years? Then you know how to class them. Third, indoctrination takes place. People are socialized. Now, I don't know why socialization has to go hand in hand with babysitting. And finally, people learn specific codes and their applications. You see the package deal? I'm speaking about schooling as the ritual which packages these four functions. And I do believe that in Latin America, this packaged ritual is so expensive that for the next few years, it will contribute tremendously to what I, we, we call the polarization of Latin American society. Schooling, Illich argued, is a lottery in which, by definition, only a few can succeed. It's a system for producing dropouts, not to say outlaws, since most countries, even today, can't afford to give their citizens the minimum amount of schooling they actually require by law. Worse, he said, people are then stigmatized and discriminated against as a result of their failure to make progress in a system in which progress for the majority is clearly impossible. His remedy for this obvious injustice was simple and radical. Disestablish school, just as liberal societies once disestablished religion make people's schooling or lack of it a private matter 
and make it illegal to discriminate against them on that basis. The political issue, in other words, was not schooling as such, but compulsion and the manifest injustices which result from it. I'm against compulsory schooling. I'm not in the same way against schools. I know that, comp uh, that schools always compound native privilege with new privilege. Only when they become compulsory can they compound lack of native privilege with added self-inflicted discrimination. Schools which are freely accessible give a chance better to organize certain specific learning tasks which a person proposes to himself. Schools, when they are compulsory, as we see at this moment in the United States, create a dazed population, an unlearned population, a mentally pretentious population as we have never seen before. The last 50 years of intensive improvement of schooling here or in Germany or in France have created television consumers. Well, when you wrote about this in 1970, you suggested that perhaps in the spirit of the time somewhat, that, yeah. that this would change, that it would have to change, and that when it did, it would change quickly. I was wrong. <laughs> At least in the time frame, I was wrong. I did not believe so many people could be so tolerant of nonsense. Now that I am back in the United States and see something after 25 years, and again have to do here and there, not only at Penn State, with student populations, I sometimes am so sad in the evening that I have difficulties falling asleep because I see at least the college and university system having become so much like television, a bit of this and a bit of that and some compulsory program which nobody but a planner understand why the, its components should be connected as they are, creating students who have utterly gotten used to the fact that what we learn they must be taught and nothing which we are taught they must really take serious. I did not believe that people could remain morally tolerant. Illich's great hopes for the rapid and decisive disestablishment of school were not realized, but neither did things remain the same. The compelling virtually irrefutable case that Illich and other like-minded writers were able to build against compulsory schooling saw to that. People remained tolerant, but they could not so easily remain innocent. What Illich said in 1971 was shocking. Today it is not. The difference is a measure of current cynicism. Deschooling Society was published in 1971. Two years later, Illich extended and generalized his analysis to include all forms of what he called radical monopoly, schools being one type. The new book was called Tools for Conviviality, and it offered a general theory of technology. 
Illich stuck to the simpler term tools, but he used it in the broad sense of any engineered means to an end. So a hammer, a highway, or a healthcare system could all equally well be described as tools. Tools, when they grow beyond a certain intensity, inevitably from means turn into ends and frustrate the possibility of the achievement of an end. I tried to establish the concept of counterproductivity. The fact that a given tool, for instance a transportation system, when it outgrows a certain intensity in its intent, inevitably removes more people from the purpose for which this tool was created, then it permits to profit from new advantages. Accelerated traffic for, every, for commuter purposes, that is compulsory traffic, inevitably increases for the great majority in society the time which every day they have to spend from going from here to there. And only a few people get the privilege to be almost omnipresent in the world. I analyzed medicine as a tool, coming to the conclusion that once you medicalize expectations, experience beyond a certain point, medicine inevitably generates more misery, more pain, more disability, and decreases the ability to engage in the art of suffering or in the art of dying precisely by its having become counterproductive. That's what I did in Tools for Conviviality. Tools for Conviviality was as close as Illich ever came to making a programmatic political statement. Politics in a post-industrial society, he argued, must not be mesmerized by production and consumption. It must focus instead on creating tools which respect natural scales, enhance relatedness, and foster autonomy and natural competence. If tools are not controlled politically, he warned, they will end up being managed by technocrats in a belated response to disaster. Shortly after he published Tools for Conviviality, Illich also produced two other books in the same vein. The first was an essay on transportation called Energy and Equity, originally published as a series in the Parisian newspaper Le Monde. It argued that high energy consumption inevitably overpowers and degrades social relations and pleaded for limits to speed. Then, in 1975, came the first draft of Medical Nemesis, later revised and expanded under the title Limits to Medicine. Calling health a process of adaptation defined by an individual's autonomous ability to cope with his environment, he proposed that modern medicine expropriates health by destroying this ability. In the period between the early 30s and the mid-50s, increasingly doctors constituted the patient apart from his consciousness. Constituted the patient apart from his yeah. consciousness. They brought you to the hospital. They just had discovered these many diagnostic methods. They established a chart. They treated the chart. They changed its parameters. When the chart was healthy, 
frequently without... I'm caricaturing, of course. Without looking at the guy, I told him, put on your shoes and go home. Then came a reform movement within medicine, starting in the late 50s and ending in the early 60s, which made the doctor aware of the necessity of treating the patient rather than his symptoms. Good medicine became identified with teaching the patient how the sick man who came to the doctor how to recognize disease as a source of his sickness and how to constitute himself as a patient of the doctor, taking co-responsibility with the doctor, co-producing the strange thing which is health. When I wrote Medical Nemesis, I was mainly concerned with the medicalization which destroyed or undermined the patient's art of suffering, which undermined people's ability to bear their uniqueness. People began to perceive of themselves according to medical models. In books like Deschooling Society and Medical Nemesis, Illich first described how professional groups like teachers and doctors acquire the exclusive right to cater to the needs which they have imputed to people in the first place. In 1977, in two essays entitled Disabling Professions and Useful Employment and Its Professional Enemies, he examined more closely this question of how professions constitute people in terms of their needs, and he took up the same theme in a lecture broadcast that year on ideas. Like Spanish inquisitors, they hold the mandate, just think of truant officer, to hunt down those whom they shall save. By the monopoly which enables them to preclude you from shopping elsewhere, and at the same time from making your own booze, they fit the random house dictionary definition of gangsters. But gangsters, for their own profit, hold a monopoly over basic necessities by controlling supplies. The new professionals gain legal endorsement for creating the need that then by law, they alone will be allowed to serve. Their control over human needs, to court, distinguishes them from yesterday's liberal professions, in the cloaks of which they usually still appear, that did not go further than imputing a need to an individual who sought help. This distinction between liberal and dominant professions was important to Illich. It identified the watershed between a time when professional services were essentially optional and a time when they became virtually mandatory. And this transition was abetted, he went on, by those who sought to professionalize the roles of consumer and client. Professionals could not have become dominant in society unless people were ready to experience as a lack what the expert imputes to them as a need. It is only during the last 20 years that Comfort and Spock and some Nader pupils teach people how to identify and ascribe to themselves with almost professional competence the needs which professionals have defined for them. To be ignorant or unconvinced of one's own needs 
thus became the unforgivable antisocial act. The good citizen is he who imputes staples needs to himself with such conviction that he drowns out any desire for alternatives, including the renunciation to needs. Part of Illich's concern with professionalism came from the way in which he saw it substituting for the participatory politics which he hoped to foster. When people begin to think of themselves as clients and consumers, he said, they often cease to think of themselves as citizens. And politics then becomes nothing more than the adjudication of competing claims for professional services. This view Illich shared with his friend John McKnight, the Director of Community Studies at the Center for Urban Affairs and Policy Studies at Northwestern University. McKnight also contributed to the volume on disabling professions. It was a subject on which he and Illich had been carrying on a conversation since the early 70s, a conversation to which McKnight brought a background in community organizing. I was concerned as a person focused on neighborhoods and neighborhood organization and uh, people who are uh, lower income folks or working class people. I was concerned by the degree to which there was an effort during the 60s and the 70s to try to lead these folks to believe that their basic problems would be solved by more and more public dollars being spent for service professionals, more social workers, more civil rights officials, more nurses, more doctors, more psychologists, more budget counselors, that whole thing. And this was something I saw to my own direct experience. I saw how human service professionals were invading neighborhoods in the name of the war on poverty and leading people who needed to be politically organized into becoming dependent upon these servicers. One aspect of that that had interested me in particular was how neighborhoods were coming to believe that their health problems could be solved by more medical care when almost all their health problems were in fact a result of an environment that was unhealthy which couldn't be changed at all by doctors. And so I have become quite a uh, proponent of not investing in more services, but in looking rather to public investments and citizen action and community organization that change the nature of the environment rather than trying to focus on changing the people who had to live in a miserable environment. In the article which he contributed to the book Disabling Professions, John McKnight coined a phrase which Illich has quoted with deep relish ever since. Professionalized care, McKnight wrote, is the mask of love. And behind that mask, he went on, hide the needs of the service professionals themselves. If finally you look realistically at the developing professions, they will all use the word care they will talk about things like Medicare and uh, providing care for the elderly and care for disabled people and uh, health care. That care is the basic symbol for their ministrations. And that the reason that they use the word care is because care is the manifestation of a feeling 
and that feeling is love. And therefore, when large systems that are administering services call that care, what they do is that they carry with them the values of, of love, the highest value, I think, that we have. And in the article, I go on to argue that, in fact, those systems are economic activities that are as uh, clearly economic in their purposes and activities as steel mills or automobile factories. And you can feel that almost literally these days in our big medical institutions. And that they are, on the other hand, not scrutinized or understood the way we would understand General Motors or the way we would understand a large public bureaucracy because they have associated with them the values of love and care. But I argued, in truth, they wear the mask of love because underneath they are, in fact, nothing but large systems, formal structures designed to provide an economy for the people who are inside the system and that we need to understand them for exactly what they are. And to do that, we have to take off the mask of love. And I think both Yvonne and I understand that care and love are never produced by a system. That systems are ersatz or second-rate acts in lieu of care and love, and that it is in relationships of people and communities that care and love occur. And to steal from the community that most basic of all values and relationships, love and care, is really an ignoble activity. You see, one of the real problems uh, I believe about our institutions and systems is that they increasingly have the power to so invade community and community life and the relationships of people to each other. They are so powerful in doing that that in fact communities grow weak as systems grow strong so that children won't take care of their parents because they know a system cares for old people better than they. Then it seems to me that the idea of a society is lost. What you have is an architecture of institutions, great hollow pyramids and deserts all around. When we use the term care, it is extremely difficult to make it mean love without demeaning love. Professional care predominates. Medical care. John McKnight, quite rightly, has called care the mask of love. The ugly mask of love. Caring professions usually have very strong public backing. 
we can establish what care a blind person needs as a minimum. We can set standards. We can then test all those people who have difficulties with sight and define who are blind. As has been shown 20 years ago, half of all people in the United States who can't see have not been defined as blind and don't care for the blind. And half of those people who are defined as blind can read the newspaper every day. It's a fact. My own long dead mother was one of them. She had a black nose because uh, the New York Times rubbed off. So professionals define what constitutes minimal care, who requires it, and then, then how it will be given. What university certificates people have to have before they are allowed to touch the diseased person or teach this blind person how to walk with a cane. In the setting of care, having become very strongly a commodity, when somebody says, I owe care to somebody, he says, gratuitously, I'll generate, I'll make, I'll produce the commodity which really a professional ought to give in that case. So having become very suspicious of care, which is the banner of the caring professions, considering caring professions as intrinsically disabling, when somebody says, don't you care for the people, for the bloated belly children on their sticky legs in the Sahel? My immediate reaction is, I will do everything I can to eliminate from my heart any sense of care for them. I want to experience horror. I want to really taste this reality about which you report to me here. I do not want to escape my sense of helplessness into a pretense that I care and that I do or have done all that which is possible to me. I want to live with the inescapable horror of these children in my, of this children and this, these persons in my heart and know that I cannot actively, really love them. Because to love them, at least the way I am built, after having read the story of the Samaritan, means to leave aside everything which I'm doing at this moment, and at least for 10 minutes, pick up that person, take whatever I have with me, in my little satchel of golden denarii, bring the guy, as that Palestinian did to the Jew who had fallen under the robbers, put him into a, an inn, which meant then a brothel, and say, please take care of that guy. When I come back, I hope I'll have made a little bit more money, and I'll bring it back to you for extra expenditures needed. <laughs> Since I have absolutely no intention, if I'm sincere, to leave this writing desk 
these index cards, these files. Sell that little antique Mexican sculpture which I bought for a dollar, but which might be worth 500 if I find the right antiquarian in New York. Take that money to go to the silent. Take that child into my hands. It's, I have no intention because it's, I consider it impossible. Mm -hmm. Why pretend that I care? Thinking that I care impedes me, first, from remembering what love would be. Second, trains me not to be in that sense loving uh, with the person who is waiting outside this door. Third, stops me from taking the next week off to go to demonstrate in front of some industry which I, in my, with my intelligence, could identify in New York, chain myself to their entrance door, so that there's one little step more made against their shares being bought, by which some ecological disaster in the Sahel is supported. Illich's rejection of professionalized care has been an unshakable constant in his thought from the beginning of his career until today. But in many other respects, his views have continuously evolved. All the books we have been discussing tonight were born out of the give and take of his seminars at CEDOC, and he has always tested and revised his opinions in the light of both criticism and changing circumstances. The process is very marked in his thinking about education. In fact, he began to question his approach in de-schooling society even before the book was published. The book was nine months at Harper's, because it takes nine months for a good book to go through the uh, gestation period. During the last month of the pre-publication month, I suddenly realized the unwanted side effects the publication of my book could have. <laughs> so I went to, oh, what's the name of the man, the one who retired to take vitamin C now? Norman Cousins. Norman Cousins. A friend of my neighbor and friend Erich from, so I had access to him and said, Norman, would you kindly allow me to publish an article during the next month? He said, yes, but only if you write it in such a way that we can put it as the lead article in the Saturday Review. And I wrote there an article in which I basically said nothing would be worse than to believe that I consider schools as the only technique for creating and establishing and anchoring in the souls the myth of education. There are many other ways by which we can make the world into a universal classroom. And Cousins was so kind to allow me to publish what I consider main criticism of my book. As time went by, this criticism seemed to Willich more and more substantial. Evidence of the coming of the universal classroom accumulated, and he finally concluded that his argument in de-schooling society had been largely beside the point. I had become blind to the fact 
that the educational function was already emigrating from school, that increasingly other forms of compulsory learning would be instituted. It would become compulsory not by law, but by other tricks, making people believe that we are learns, learning something from TV, and compel people to attend in-service training in many forms, making people pay huge amounts of monies in order to be taught how to prepare better for intercourse, how to be more sensitive, how to know more about the vitamins which they need, how to play games. That, therefore, the idea of acquiring and the compulsion of acquiring an education not satisfied by schooling would become a wide market in modern societies. This made me, ref made me understand that my criticism of schooling, on which I wrote exactly this pamphlet, mm -hmm. The Schooling Society, yeah. might have helped people like yourself to reflect, but that I was climbing up the wrong tree. But I should ask myself, how can we understand better the fact that societies get addicted, like to a drug, to education, and then during the 70s, most of my thinking and reflection, to put it very simple, was the question, how should I distinguish the acquisition of education from the fact that people always have known some things, many things, may have had many competences, and evidently therefore have learned something. And I came to define education as learning under the assumption of scarcity, learning under the assumption that the means for acquiring something called knowledge are scarce. At this point, my reflection wasn't rabble-rousing anymore. <laughs> Nobody on the campus discussed it. I tried to bring it into the educational research associations, completely failed. And even five years later, I barely see a little response here and there. The changes in Illich's thinking about education are characteristic of changes in his thought as a whole. From criticizing institutions, he has moved to challenging the mental frameworks in which these institutions make sense. But this is not to say that he now renounces his earlier work or that there are not deep underlying continuities in his concerns. In 1973, when he wrote Tools for Conviviality, Illich issued a prophetic call for conversion, for a change of heart and a change of mind and an awakening of hope in one another. He proposed a way of life simple in means and rich in ends, and he warned of the inevitable consequences of failure to set limits, consequences which would involve not just the destruction of the physical world, but also the corruption of human nature. Today, looking back, he sees that much of what he predicted has happened, both for good and for ill, but not quite in the ways he anticipated. Many of the certainties by which people lived in 1973 are gone, which generates deep cynicism, confusion, 
inner void among people who live in an intensely monetarized society, like urban US, but which creates extraordinary opportunities for a new way of existence, which I see emerging in Mexico, but in a dozen other places in the world, which I think I know somewhat and can make a judgment on them. People realize that they can use the so-called benefits of development for their purposes, not for the purposes which they were made for. They can cannibalize cars. They can use junk. They can, the educational system in most countries has become so corrupt that they can easily buy certificates if they want them for a specific purpose. That they don't go have to go to school to learn something that you would be stupid to go to a hospital when you are sick. Incredible with what speed, all kind of what Americans call quackery, from homeopaths to uh, osteopaths to herbalists to vegetarian restaurants grow up all through Latin America, mainly because we are cheaper. When I wrote Tools for Conviviality, I got very deeply disturbed because I foresaw so clearly trends and the convergence of trends, which by now are obvious to everybody. I was lacking in trust for Mexico, for instance, in the extraordinary creativity of people to live in the midst of what frustrates bureaucrats, what frustrates planners, what frustrates observers. Mexico has grown in these 15 years from a city of 4 million to a city of 20 million. A city of 20 or 22 million should not be governable. Still, from all over the world, people come to figure out how Mexico is governed, instead of figuring out how come a city like that can survive without government. A city of that should be paralyzed. In 1960, no, in 1954, correctly, the UNESCO, at its regional meeting in South America, complained that the main obstacle to education was the indifference of parents of sending their children to school. Fifteen years later, they had to notice that the demand for schooling was seven times superior to the available classrooms. Today, I know from my own experience there is wide cynicism, not among people who are now pretty old, who are now grandparents or great-grandparents, but among the people who went through school and who don't see any reason why their children should go through the same experience. People see what scientists and administrators don't see. When you wrote Tools for Conviviality, yeah. you laid out a political program for inverting the structure of tools, as you put it. Yeah. Now you're saying, I think, it happened. that it, it happened, but not 
in the way you anticipated. It happened in a way which I hadn't anticipated. Uh, you can tell me whether I was skillful, whether I put, whether, that almost the last words of that book, if I rightly remember, is things, I, I know in which direction things will happen, but what will bring them to that point, I have not the slightest idea. I, th I believed in some big symbolic event, some, some Wall, something similar to the Wall Street crash. Instead of that, it is simply hundreds of millions of people just using their brains and trusting their senses. The disillusionment with development, which Illich is talking about, is now very pronounced in places like Mexico. Illich's friend and colleague, Gustavo Esteva, represents it as a decision to abandon the remote, institutionally defined goals of development and create instead a new commons, a new space in which people can be together and live right now. Once a high official of the Mexican government, Esteva now describes himself as a deprofessionalized intellectual and nomadic storyteller. He works with the groups of peasants and urban marginals who are creating this new commons and he says that Illich's great contribution to them has been to give them confidence in themselves. Ivan helped us a lot to see our things with our own eyes, to trust again our own nose. It was very difficult and very painful for all of us to resist the pressure of the dominant views of right or left. And Ivan was really very um, helpful in, in, in that his critique of uh, industrial society was uh, something like to find a very strong concrete ally yeah. for our own, our own views. One of the things we like more in, in Ivan is precisely what uh, others critique in, in him, is that he really don't, don't give a, a recipe to do the things. He, he has not a new religion or a new political proposal that you must, uh, political catechism, uh, that you must follow A, B, C, D, E uh, to come to a, a specific utopia. He opened a space, social space, political space, and in that space you can walk on your own foot. You, you don't need to follow him. <laughs> that, that <laughs> it's just uh, give you the opportunity of, uh, of uh, thinking with your own cells, your own brain, not, uh, not uh, uh, trying to call the experts to help you, <laughs> to orient you. Ivan has not that kind of thing. Even in our conversations uh, here or there, in, in uh, all these things that we have about uh, beyond development, what um, if you personally ask what I must do here or there, um, you, you will receive uh, perhaps uh, not only a no, but uh, an angry man telling you, um, why are you <laughs> adopting such a position? He, he's not the guru, he's not uh, the um, saint, he's not, he's not the wise man to ask for the advice. He's, he's a critical man that um, discovered uh, all this burden on us and uncovered a, a, a land of, uh, of opportunities and surprises.
Next week on Ideas, we'll continue our profile of Ivan Illich with a programme about his work as an historian of the Middle Ages. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. Technical Operations, Peter Beamish. Production Assistants, Brian Hickey and Gail Brownell. Archival Research, Ken Pewley. Producer, Jill Eisen. We have Ivan Illich's permission to offer our listeners a printed transcript of this five-part series. Send a cheque or money order for $7 to CBC Enterprises, Illich, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. We also have a reading list, and you can get that free by writing to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Mm-hmm.